I'm Annie Hager. I'm founder and principal of CyberGC, which is a boutique legal consulting and board advisory firm specialising in cybersecurity and technology. What are your crown jewels? What is the most valuable thing in your organisation? And how would you cope if it was attacked and unavailable, stolen or evicted so that you can't use it? This is Welcome to the Founderverse, empowering a new generation of national security practitioners. And now, Meg Tapia. Annie Hager is a multi-award winning cybersecurity lawyer and principal of boutique cyber law firm, CyberGC. She founded her own business after over a decade with digital and tech consulting giant Accenture, where she worked as a global legal counsel for Accenture's managed security business and regional counsel for Accenture Security. And he speaks to us from Ngunnawal country in Canberra about what it takes for Australian businesses to prepare for, defend and recover from cybersecurity attacks, how lawyers serve to complement, not restrict, cyber defence, and how to find balance as a businesswoman, board member and mother. Annie, you started your career as a solicitor and a procurement consultant. How did you end up in cyber? I think it was a natural progression because I was working for this tiny little law firm that was really just one principal and then a bunch of paralegals. Uh, and we just had this incredible access to clients, really big uh, Commonwealth government client work. And it was all technology-based. So looking at big technology outsourcings, big technology development projects. I was still doing my law degree at the time, but I've realised that technology law was really interesting because it was constantly changing, solving problems for clients that um, weren't just technology problems, but actual people problems. And that I really realized that technology was a way of helping clients to solve so many problems within their business, but it was also embedded into all parts of their business and what they needed to achieve with their end customers. So I became completely fascinated with technology law and um, went to work for a um, a big law firm, which was called DLA Piper at the time. I was working in their specialist technology team with a specialist technology partner and continued to work on some really interesting things, which uh, now look like really ancient um, technology, but with some of it, we're still rolling out. So smart meters, we worked on some of the first smart meter contracts in Australia, which was really cutting edge technology at the time. And from there, I left uh, after a few years to go in-house and work for a technology company because when you're working in a law firm, you often don't get uh, to see a project from beginning through to the end because lawyers get brought in for short snippets because uh, we are traditionally quite expensive. And I found that that wasn't very fulfilling because I really like to help build things and I hope to like to help problem solve. And that includes problem solving throughout the life of a project. And you get to do that when you become a lawyer for a business because you're part of that business, you're invested in their success and business people are your clients, but the success of the business is also your success and it's really satisfying. So I went to work for an enormous technology company, Accenture, and with them I got to work on projects and support them throughout their life and sometimes they'd come back to me 10 years later for the next stage of the project and to get my advice on it. And that was something that really made me feel like I was helping to build something. But 
when you work in technology, you are constantly having to keep an eye out for what the next technology development is. And Accenture is one of those companies that is constantly looking for what is next, which was great because we were always at the cutting edge and legal was helping them to be the cutting edge of whatever the new technology was. So as a lawyer, I had to constantly look at what was the next technology advance that needed legal support. And in my career, we've gone from you know, traditional application development and outsourcing through to advising on the metaverse, and that's just in 10 years. So it was quite a natural progression for me, having been a technology lawyer my whole life, when they said, hey, there's this thing called cybersecurity, and it's about the services and technology needed to protect technology from bad actors. We need to provide services in that space as a company. Could you help us to set up the security part of this business so that we can help our clients to secure their customers, their data, their systems, their people? And I had absolutely no idea about security, but I did know about technology. And so I started to learn. And that was getting on for 10 years ago now, but it was a journey. And like all technology, it evolves and your knowledge of it has to grow as the technology changes. Right. And it's been a journey now that's nearly 20 years. Is that about right? Yeah. So I started working in the tiny little law firm when I was still at law school. And that's almost 20 years ago now. And so you've said that you see that law firms and in-house counsel are trusted advisors to the board to help them understand the full range of potential risks, in particular legal and regulatory risks. But you've also described law firms and professional advisors as a potential weak link in the cyber supply chain for both government and then other private client organisations. How come? Because law firms, and this is not just law firms, this is also applies to other professional advisory firms, they don't traditionally think of themselves as part of a supply chain. They think of themselves as a bit separate. And so they haven't taken steps to secure their own systems in the way that customers have demanded their own supply chain start to think about securing their IT. It's also a thing about size. The big law firms have taken steps to secure their IT, but a lot of professional services firms, lawyers included, are small operations. They are one person or maybe a handful of partners with some junior lawyers under them, but they are small and it's often really hard for them to understand what's needed in their technology space and to implement it. And it's also a generational thing. A lot of law firms are still headed up by people who have been around a long time and are not necessarily at the forefront of technology and all the things needed to secure it. They don't like technology change. They don't like using complicated things like multi-factor authentication, which actually isn't complicated, but it's new. And a lot of more senior members in the professional services space struggle with technology development. And so they don't like to adopt it quickly. So they fall behind. I think there's also a cost element. But actually, you can get technology set up for small business quite quickly and quite cheaply, and you can secure that quite quickly and quite cheaply, but you need to appreciate that you have to do it to spend the time. What questions do boards need to be asking of their council about how they mitigate risk and protect themselves in terms of the cyber landscape? Yeah, it's a great question. And in cyber landscape, we always talk about three areas of controls and protection, technology, 
people and processes. So the board should be asking their IT provider or their or their CEO, whoever's running the business, about what steps have been put in place in each of those three pillars. They should be asking, are we using secure, up-to-date technology? Have we done basic things like implement security patches for software? We're running hardware that can be updated. Those are fairly simple. You can also get great technology support on those. They should then also be asking, do we understand what data we hold, where we hold it, and how it's protected? They should also think about other things in their organization that might be valuable, not just personal data. We have traditionally focused a lot about the security of personal data, but actually cybersecurity attacks focus on attacking things that aren't just personal data. and We often forget about securing those. So knowing what data you hold as an organization, where you hold it, and how it's secured, but also what are your crown jewels? What is the most valuable thing in your organization? And how would you cope if it was attacked and unavailable, stolen or evicted so that you can't use it? So that's probably not a question for your lawyer. It's a question for your executive about do we know what that is and how it's protected? The questions then for your lawyer are how are we protected from our contracts? Have we changed our customer terms? Have we changed our supplier terms to uplift the security requirements there? Do we know what regulation applies to us? So for those who are captured by the critical infrastructure legislation, do we appreciate that we are captured by that and are we going to meet our requirements? Everybody is captured by some of the legislation in the cybersecurity space and it's a quite complex set of jigsaw puzzles about how that fits together. And so your lawyer should be making sure that the board understands what is applicable to your business based on the type of business you run, the type of clients you have, the type of information you hold, and then what that requirement is for your legislation on your business and helping you to translate that into practical processes that mean you can comply with those laws. And you mentioned at the outset people. So how does improving culture and the awareness that the individual has as part of an organisation, because organisations aren't their own entities, they're made up of people. So what is the role of culture and people in cyber resilience? Uh, It's incredibly important. So your people are both your weakest link and your strongest defence. So if you have a strong culture of cybersecurity, and that means you've got People who understand the cybersecurity risk, they know what to do to be cybersecurity safe, and they follow the processes and the procedures that are recommended in your training, you will actually be at lower risk of attack. You will be in a better position to defend that attack and withstand it, and you'll be in a better position to respond. But if your organization doesn't have a good culture of security, People are less aware of the risks. They're much more likely to keep click on phishing emails or to take phone calls and give out information that's a problem. The culture has to come from the top and it has to be lived by the leaders in an organisation and demonstrated every day. I've worked in firms where the leaders would get their secretaries to click through the cybersecurity training. The message that that sent was cybersecurity is not important to the executive. So therefore, how can it be important to the rest of us? So it's simple things, leading by example, following your own processes, making sure everybody in the organization from the top down lives and breathes that security will, along with good technology and processes, actually make you quite cyber resilient. 
Let's pivot to the Australian cybersecurity strategy because cybersecurity isn't just important to the individual organisations and the message that you send, as you say, from the leadership down into that organisation, but cybersecurity is clearly really important to the Australian government right now and to Australia as a nation. The Department of Home Affairs is leading the development of this new cybersecurity strategy, and their goal is to make Australia the most cyber secure nation in the world. That's a pretty big goal. Is that achievable? I love that goal because if you don't aim for something big, you won't ever get there. I think it is achievable if we all pull together. There's an interest not just for the government in terms of national security, but there's an interest for Australian business to improve their security because it can have a direct financial cost on that business. So if we all recognise that we have a role to play, and that's individuals not getting scammed, not falling for text message phishing scams that come through, it's about businesses being more resilient and not wasting money on having to pay ransoms or having to recover from cyber attacks. And it's about governments not having to also spend a huge amount of time responding to cyber breaches. Think about what that money could do in our economy. Good. I see the cybersecurity threat, not just that our information is being stolen and there is value in that that we are losing, but as a community, if we're spending money on defending against cyber attacks, we have to spend that money on that instead of where it's really needed for our education systems, for our hospitals, for our national development. So if we are all making Australia the most secure place in the world, it also leads to all of these other benefits for us as a community. So when companies are thinking about who they go to for this advice and support to be part of this more resilient nation, because everybody has a role to play, there is a difference, I think, in value between the big companies, which you've worked for, the medium-sized companies, which you've also worked for, and now you being on on your own, uh, having your own company that you're running. What for you is the difference in value that a client is going to get when they go to each of these firms? It's a really great question. I think the value is in getting the right service and solution for the problems they're trying to solve. If you are a giant multinational, we're operating in over 100 countries and having to deal with uh, global differing legislation and requirements and having to have people and processes and systems that span multiple boundaries, then you need a provider like a big multinational who also operates at that level, understands that complexity and can support you where you are. But that's only 3% of the Australian business landscape. And there's another 97% out there that don't have to think about that level of complexity. And their focus is maybe one or two countries, but mostly it's here, it's home. They need support that is focused on where they are and the problems that they're facing and can pivot to help them solve problems at a level that is appropriate for their business. And I think that's where the medium-sized businesses and actually the small businesses can be really agile. And particularly the small businesses, they can come in just for the core component of their service. They can bring their solution, their core people to you really quickly, and they can give you the advice really tailored to your business because they're there just focused on you. Larger businesses often have put a lot of time and money into developing a product or a capability, and they need to get a return on that. And so they sell that product and they solve the problems with a focus on that product. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's absolutely what we need to develop efficiencies and scalability. But 
sometimes if you're a really small business, you don't need a quite large, complex solution. Sometimes you can actually take advantage of something that is provided by that scalable solution. So it really is about finding the providers that you work with, suit the scale of the problem that your business is facing, and give you the advice in the way that you need it in the moments when it's most important to you. And sometimes that's going to be very tailored, very niche, very localised. And really quick. And really quick. In terms of value, but from a different vantage point, having been in all of these different companies, for you in your career, what's the value that you've gotten out of working in all different types and size and complexity of firms? I've really appreciated seeing things operate at the biggest scale possible. I mean, I worked for one of the biggest companies in the whole world and we faced issues because of the size of our workforce and the diversity of our workforce that had to have problem-solving techniques that were gold standard. We did risk analysis like no one else. We understood the risks of every element of the business we were going into and we were able to then apply that at a global scale. And that was incredible to watch. When you work in a smaller business, you can focus on other things because you don't have to think about 134 countries and 700,000 people all at once. But if you don't also know what amazing looks like when you're developing processes, it's hard to build towards that. So one of the things I'm really grateful for in my career is having seen what bold standard global process looks like. You then bring that and you apply that at an appropriate level to your smaller business operations. You are a board member for Music for Canberra and you've previously been a member of the Council of the Law Society of the ACT. How have these kinds of experiences helped you to understand the role of the board and the role of the board member from a cyber landscape point of view or just from a broadly a risk perspective? It's been really eye-opening to see the risks analysis done by these small not-for-profit organisations, very different organisations, because they are struggling to deliver value to their members and deliver a program of services with small budgets. They face very different risks. And when you've put the layer of a cybersecurity breach on top of those risks, you know that that would potentially just destroy that not-for-profit's mission. And all of the people that benefit from that would be without that service and without that support. So for a small organisation without a lot of money, it's often easy to go, we just can't deal with thinking about that because we are worrying whether we're going to be able to continue to operate in six months' time because we're operating on a very small budget and we're always close to the line, Um, which means that some of the other what feels like existential risks are not front of mind when they could, in fact, cause the whole organisation to fold if they were the subject of an attack. So as a board member, I'm trying to help my fellow board members and the executive to balance the perception of that risk and to bring it to the forefront, but in a way that feels approachable, that they understand the risk and that they understand they can take action, even as a small organisation, to better prepare and protect themselves. You have a pretty full plate. You are running your own company. You have been on boards and you're a parent to two young girls. And I hate having to mention that you are a parent, but the reality is as women, we are having to juggle a lot of things. How do you handle that juggle? How do you find balance for yourself with all of these different roles that you take on? Uh, I try and I will be the first to admit I don't always do it very well because it is a constant juggle and the demands of the kids 
will change, the demands of the business will change, and I just have to hope sometimes that they don't all require a huge amount of effort all at the same time. We have a wonderful husband who also does uh, his, his fair share of the parenting and the support around the house. But the way I deal with it is well, I'm not perfect and I ask for help. Uh, that includes paying for help. So we have a wonderful nanny who comes and helps during the week. And I try to be really organized because I find when I'm organized that that creates pockets of space for me. But it, it's not always a great balance. So at the moment, I wouldn't say I'm balancing it very well. <laughs> I have a lot of hobbies that I haven't gotten anywhere near in a really long time. Um, but I'm also just at the early stages of starting a business. And so you've got to recognize that's going to require a bit more time and that I'll get back to my knitting maybe in a couple more months when I've gotten into, you know, through the startup phase. But it is, you can't think everything has to be balanced every day or every week. You'll achieve balance over a longer period of time. And I think it's about looking at it that with that longer horizon. Can you have it all? It depends what all is. That's a very legal thing to say, isn't it? Like, depends on the definition. <laughs> when you have two small children who you love and want to spend lots more time with and a career that you find really interesting, yes, but at some point there'll be sacrifice of something and that might be time with the kids occasionally. It might be not biting off more than you can chew with the business, taking things one day at a time. You lead with authenticity. You lead by being present in the moment. Who have been your role models that have helped you to find this type of leadership for yourself? I was really lucky to work with a couple of amazing female leaders in my time at Accenture over the over the more than a decade I was there. And they each in their own ways showed me how to be truly human and to lead as an authentic leader. And not to hide behind a, I'm a very you know, polished professional. It was always that there was a human element to what they were presenting themselves as leaders. So the global leader that I worked for for many years, she was always talking about how she had these routines with her kids and how she put her family first. And that meant it provided me with the example that I can do that. So when I had my own team to run, family always came first. If somebody had a family issue, we would wait. We were there. They needed to take time. They needed to look after sick kids, support a sick partner. That was far more important for my team. And they knew that that would also apply to me. You lead by providing the example of how you would want to be led. And I think I also had the pleasure of working with peers, not just bosses, because I think you can learn really a lot from your peers, not just the people who are your managers. And by the way that they carved out time and were clear with their colleagues about their boundaries and I really respected that because if you're not protecting your boundaries no one else will so you need to appreciate that when someone says this is a boundary for me that you respect that but it gives you the space and permission to create those boundaries for yourself. Tell me what advice would you give to people starting their career in the legal profession writ large, but in particular wanting to find that nexus between law and technology. I say to a lot of law students, hey, you know what's a really interesting area? Law and technology, because technology impacts on every part of society now, and it is going to continue to be a really large part of how the world grows and develops. The law is always a little bit behind in how it develops around the technology developments, but that just makes it interesting because we're kind of in this green space the whole time. 
like guidance to new lawyers is always find an area that you love, that you're passionate about, because once you're in an area of law, it is hard to change. Not impossible, but hard. So make sure that you're doing an area that you're passionate about, people you'll be helping or the problems that you'll be solving. So before we wrap up, I want to ask you one final question. What is one really promising area, an emerging trend or a piece of advice that you're currently paying attention to? I think the piece of advice is the one I'll go with, which is that cybersecurity can seem like a really scary technical thing. And whilst there are elements of it that are technical, networks, devices, firewalls, etc., and I'm not a technical um, coding person, that doesn't mean that if you don't have those skills that there's nothing you can do. There is so much you can do that you don't need any technical experience to do to protect yourself as an individual, but also to protect your business. And so you can, with no money, start to change the culture of security in your organisation, change your processes, and you shouldn't just wait until you get hit by a cybersecurity attack because who wants to be a sitting duck? There is so much you can do. Little steps make a big difference, and it's really everyone's job to start paying attention to cybersecurity in their lives and in their businesses. And if you do need help, CyberGC can help provide some of that non-technical people training processes and legal advice about what you can do, those small micro steps that will start you on that journey. So be curious, ask the question and educate yourself. Absolutely. Don't assume there's nothing you can do. There's always something. Curiosity is a wonderful place to start. Bonnie Hager, thanks for joining us on The Boundverse. Thanks, Meg. It's been great fun. You've been listening to Welcome to the Founderverse, brought to you by Novexus. Innovate. Connect. Thrive.